On June the 15th of last year, the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta was celebrated at Runnymede on the Thames in Great Britain near the city of Windsor. 801 years ago this coming June, King John and the 25 leading barons within the English countryside got together and sought to settle their differences. King John, very heavy-handed, especially as it had to do with taxation, and the barons clamoring for freedom and equality. In that moment, most scholars believe that the seeds of real democracy and freedom were planted. And certainly our nation has benefited from it. Our founding fathers were influenced, whether they knew the Magna Carta, they were influenced by the thoughts which flowed from that and the aftermath of that. In the Declaration of Independence, we know these words, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Included in those inalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If there's one word that characterizes our nation, probably it's the word freedom. Would you agree with that? I was thinking about the great anthems of our nation, the star-spangled banner, and how it concludes by talking about how that great flag waves over the land of the free. As I recall my childhood, the first anthem of our nation that I was taught and I grew to love was my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Our nation is a nation founded on liberty. The signature quotation from the revolutionary era in our nation was Patrick Henry's statement, give me liberty or give me death. In 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke to the nation as the nation was in the throes of a world war of epic proportions. And he spoke of four freedoms. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Freedom from want and freedom from fear. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation freeing all slaves in the United States of America. We cherish freedom as Americans. But what we must understand is that if we're going to have the maintenance of freedom in our nations, there must be something that happens in our hearts, particularly in the hearts of those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We must set apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts and let him reign in our lives so that we can be free. It's been said about the book of Galatians, which we've been studying, that Galatians is the Magna Carta of the Christian religion. And I would find myself in full agreement with that. This passage, which we read just a few moments ago, and which we're going to look at in some detail today, speaks of two threats to our freedom. The first of which is legalism. And the second of which is what I would call license. We're going to look at both 
Now, as we open the Bible again to the book of Galatians, perhaps you kept your place there. And we're going to begin with the first threat, the threat of legalism. Perhaps it is the greater threat because more time is devoted to it. But we'll see that license is also an ominous threat to our freedom. Legalism, that is the belief system which says that our acceptance with God is based on our religious achievement. In other words, my salvation does not depend wholly upon what Jesus Christ has done, but also upon what I have done. That is legalism. And legalism is a huge threat to real Christianity. As we study the book of Galatians, the first two chapters we have seen are devoted to the establishment of the authenticity and authority of the apostleship of the Apostle Paul. The second two chapters have dealt with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has raised a doctrinal argument. Then he's made a personal appeal. Then he's used an allegory as illustrating the difference between a life that is lived under the law as opposed to a life that is lived by grace and faith in the promise of God given to the great man Abraham thousands of years before Galatians was even written. We have seen these things as we've considered this matter. But now let us look in detail at verses 1 through 12, which speak about this enemy of real faith in Christ, which is known as legalism. Paul begins with a statement of truth, a statement of fact. Look at what he says. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, note, Jesus is the one who is the liberator. He is the great emancipator. It is He who has redeemed us. It is He who has reconciled us to God. It is said of Him that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself when Jesus died on the cross for us. And Jesus Christ liberated us for the purpose of freedom. This does not mean, as we're going to see later, freedom from the moral law. But what it does mean, it means freedom from the curse of the law and from the rule of the law in our lives. So let's look back at chapter 3, verse 13. Speaking of this matter of our being set free by Jesus Christ from the curse of the law. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And by the way, what was the curse of the law? The curse of the law was that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. In other words, all my efforts fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, the law is a curse to us because when the law came, the awareness of sin and the penalty of sin was put in place in our lives. So he goes on to say in verse 13, Having become a curse for us, Christ becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree or hangs on a tree. So Jesus became a curse for us when he died on the cross and God the Father punished Christ for our sin so that we could be made right with God through what Christ has done for us. This 
Freedom is also freedom from the domination of the law. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. But the Scripture, which would have been be inclusive of the law, has set shut up all men under sin. The word translated shut up was not a word that was a rude way of speaking. <coughs> Excuse me, but it was a word which is indicative of imprisonment and how the law keeps us in prison because of the sin in our lives. We've been freed by Christ. This is amazing to think about and such an important truth in our lives. Paul goes on to talk in the second part of verse 1 by giving us a command. (coughs) He begins the second part with the word therefore. And therefore suggests that as a result of this truth that is for freedom that Christ has set us free, we have an obligation And that is given to us in two ways, this command in verse 1. Keep standing firm. That's where we must begin. Keep standing firm in God's achievement, in what Christ has done for us. Not in our own religious achievement, not by things we think we must do to get right with God, not in a legalistic approach, but in the achievement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm tenaciously in and for freedom from the law. And then he concludes this command portion by saying, do not subject or be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The word be subject is a word which carries with the idea to be held by. And you think about a yoke of oxen. Have you ever seen a a team of oxen plowing? And they're yoked together. They're held together by the yoke. And they're, in a sense, imprisoned by that yoke. And so, before we come to Christ, we too are in that kind of situation. We are subject to a yoke of slavery. And remember what we saw a few weeks ago that Paul in the fourth chapter talks about how we once were slaves, but now we are children of God in Christ Jesus Why would you go back again to a lifetime of enslavement? That's what he's reiterating here. It's something that he comes back to repeatedly, it seems, in this book. And the Holy Spirit is doing that in order to remind those to whom this was first sent and to us as well about the ever-present possibility of our being lured back in to a works, achievement-oriented kind of relationship with God. The next section, beginning with verse 2, talks about warnings. There are three warnings which are given, and they're all related to one another. Each warning carries with it this condition. If you receive circumcision as a means of acceptance with God, certain negative things will happen to you. Now, remember, what does circumcision represent? It represents my religion. It represents my achievement as opposed to my receiving by grace through faith the achievement of God on my behalf for my right standing before God. So let's look at verse 2 for the first warning. 
Behold, I, Paul, and he's appealing to his authority as an apostle. We know this by the way in which he states this introduction. Say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Well, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Jesus will be of no benefit to us. The moment I step outside the realm of faith and grace and I start living under the law again, it results in Christ's work on the cross, dying for my sin, and His resurrection from the dead, securing my justification and my right relationship with God, is not of value. It's of no benefit to me. He goes on in verse 3. Let's look at this. And I testify. And this word which is translated testify is speaking of a solemn testimony. I solemnly testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So, Paul goes on to write, if you receive circumcision as a means of acceptance with God, you think that's what makes you right with God. If you do anything that you believe you must do in your own strength to make yourself right with God, then you are committing yourself to keeping not just that part of the law that you should be circumcised, but all of the law. Because from God's point of view, the entire law is one unit. James alludes to this in James 2.10. He says this. He says, if you are able to keep the entire law and you only break one part of the law, you are guilty of having broken all the law. The law is a unit. And so if I'm going to regress and I want to step back and to live legalistically, then what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to be committing myself to keep the whole law. Let me stop and ask you. Do you want to commit yourself to live the whole law of God? You talk about a burden. It is amazing. Now, we're going to talk about the role that the law, the moral aspect of the law, still plays in our lives because it plays a vital role. We're going to talk about that a little later, if I remember. So, raise your hand if I forget. Look at verse 4. Paul is mincing no words. He says, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So if you or I receive circumcision, we know what that's representative of, if we, in our thought processes, buy into the false notion that I or you must do something to make ourselves right with God, to improve our position in relationship to God, if we do that, then we have left Christ and Christianity and we have joined Judaism. That's what it really says. And Judaism, of course, was a legalistic religion in the day of the Apostle Paul. He was a great example of that because he said about himself that as far as legalistic righteousness was concerned, he was flawless. He kept all these laws. If I'm not mistaken, there were 516 laws added to the commandment which says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not only did you have to remember that one, but you had to remember all 516 and obey those laws. And that's just the iceberg of the whole law. What happens is we keep the law 
and we leave Christ and Christianity and we go back to Judaism. The reason I say this is because the word which is translated severed in verse 4 is a word which meant to render null and void. To invalidate is what it meant. It meant meant to cancel something that had once been binding or true. So for me to revert back to a legalistic approach, or you to do that, to our relationship with God, is to be the cancellation of our connection with Christ. And he concludes this with something of a troubling statement where he says, you have fallen from grace. Now, I would stake my life spiritually and otherwise on the truth that once you know Christ, you're solid in him. You're not going to be removed from him in terms of losing your place in the family of God. And I base that on many passages. I'm going to just mention a couple, one from Paul and one from the mouth of Jesus. Let's begin with Paul. In Romans 8, he said, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. He uses the strongest possible language that he could grasp for and use to communicate there's no way you can lose your relationship. So what is this idea of falling from grace? Well, notice it's contrasted to being justified by the law. Justified by the law, law and grace are being contrasted by by Paul here in chapter 5, verse 4 of Galatians. The law, remember the law is my effort. Grace is God's achievement. My achievement versus God's achievement. And what he's getting at when he's talking about this in this passage of Scripture is he's saying that by seeking to be justified by works of law, we have fallen away from the way of justification by grace. There are warnings in this passage which are incredibly strong to us and should give us pause as we think about this whole matter of trying to do something to make us right with God or add something to what Christ has done for our salvation. Let's look at verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, let me back that up and go at it in reverse by looking at the last part of that statement, the hope of righteousness. What might that be? It was the hope, and it is the hope, that I have. Hopefully you have this hope as well. That there's coming on the day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the verdict of acquitted, not guilty. We know the Bible teaches that there is therefore now no condemnation. Not, we don't have to wait till that day. But it will be finalized on that day when the Lord says, You are a sheep. Go In this direction, we can be sure that we're Christians, no doubt about it, by our hearing the voice of Christ and following Christ, by embracing the work of Christ on our behalf. So the idea of the hope of righteousness is a very important idea. Notice 
how we receive this work of Christ, this righteousness. It's through the Spirit. In Romans 8, 2, Paul says this. After having said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is what we hear the Lord say through Paul. He says, For the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you see how the Spirit is the one who sets us free in the work of Christ and by faith? It's not by works. So you see the contrast that the Spirit of God paints in these words through Paul. In verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything, but faith working through love. The main thing is faith. Our relationship to God is based on faith. But it does work, right? A faith that does not work is a dead faith, is what the Bible says. And the fact that some people profess faith, but their lives do not show forth any fruit, especially in the area of love, that's a false confession. It's not based on a real relationship with the Lord. It's a dead faith that that is based on. So these warnings which Paul issues are very important for us as they were to the Galatians. Now the last part of this section on legalism, Paul shifts gears a little bit. He's not concerned with circumcision now in verses 7 through 12. Rather, he is concerned with those teachers that said you have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to add something to what Christ has done. You have to involve your own effort and achievement to be made right with God. He's going to take those people to task. He begins on a positive note here in verse 7. You were running well. He's talking to the believers in the church of Galatia. They were running well. And then something happened. Look at what happened. He asked the question, who hindered you from obeying the truth? The word hindered is a word which means to cut in on. Now, it's been a long time since I've been to a dance, but I do remember a time or two when someone cut in on me, and I didn't particularly like it because I was interested in the girl that I was dancing with. Maybe once or twice I was glad someone did cut in on me. But this word was used to describe an advancing army in New Testament times. And what happened was that to slow down the advancement of this army, those that were being advanced upon cut into a road. It created an obstacle to the progress. That's the idea that's conveyed. This word was also used in a running context because in those days when the Olympics or certain races similar to the Olympics took place, they weren't run on an oval track. Most of the Olympics are run on an oval, except maybe the marathon and the steeplechase. I don't know about the steeplechase, but there are a lot of races that are just run around that 400-meter deal, right? Well, the way these races were run in that day is they were run in a straight line, and at some point, where the runners knew there would be a pole, that was the place where you reached and you turned around and you came back. And some of the writers in the New Testament era talk about how racers who were in the lead, someone came and cut in on them and cut them off, really, and got the advantage and went on to defeat that runner, especially around the pole that they would run around. 
Some of you may remember the name Mary Decker Slaney. Mary Decker was the most decorated long-distance and mid-distance runner in the history of American racing. At one time, she held 17 individual records. That's an amazing feat when you think about it. She was the first woman to break the 4-minute, 20-second barrier in the mile. She was the odds-on favorite to win the Olympics in the early 1990s. I can't remember the exact year. It could have been 1992. And she was in the race. I have a vivid picture in my mind, however, of what came down. She was running. The runners were bunched up. And all of a sudden, Britain's representative, who was actually a South African, Zola Budd, came and she cut in on her. Now, according to the rules of running in the Olympics, a person cannot cut in on someone until the person's a full stride in front. And there was a debate as to whether Zola Budd was a full stride, but nevertheless, she cut in on her, and the result was what happened to Mary Decker. She tripped and fell on the infield. She never got up again. She was hindered by Zola Budd. Now, Paul knows who hindered these believers in Galatia. Who was it? It it was maybe one person because he's going to speak as if there were only one. Maybe it was all the teachers, maybe more than just one, but there was someone or some group of people who had come to them and told them, your faith is incomplete. Your relationship with God is incomplete. Why? Because you have not been circumcised. That's why. You've got to add something to what God has done for you. And look at verse 8. This persuasion, this way of thinking, did not come from him who calls you. Paul wanted to make it very clear that this was not of God, that God was not calling them to be circumcised, because God's plan of salvation is represented in what we read in the book of Ephesians. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 that we are accepted in the Beloved. You know who the Beloved is? Jesus We, who are in Christ, have been accepted in the Beloved based upon all that He has done. Now, catch this. Therefore, we are in Christ. Think of Christ as being represented by a circle. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have refused to trust in your own self for salvation, you are in Jesus Christ. So now, what's true of Jesus is true of you. In theory, if I'm in Christ, I am perfect in Christ. Would you think that I'm perfect? I hope not. I know you don't. You can't be a pastor of a church for 20 plus years and people think you're perfect. I'm way far from that. The older I get, the more imperfect I become. That's one of the hazards of growing older. You have more opportunities to mess up, right? But thank God for His grace. Because it was through Jesus that we we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. And all the Bible says of our trespasses, transgressions were forgiven. Not just some, but all. And we are the recipients of the glory of the riches of His grace. This is a gospel of grace. 
It's what God has done for us. God's riches at Christ's expense for us. God would never agree with those false teachers known as the Judaizers in the region of Galatia who were trying to persuade these new believers that they needed to add something to what Christ had done. And then Paul is just so wrought up. He's just kind of putting some thoughts together here. Verse 9, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, leaven, we might say it this way, a little yeast makes the whole batch rise. Isn't that true? It doesn't take much yeast to make dough rise. But thank God for yeast. It makes bread taste good. It's better to me, at least. I prefer leavened to unleavened bread. But in the Bible, typically, not always, but most of the time, the whole concept of leaven is a symbol of evil. So a little evil causes the whole batch to spoil, is what this means. Now, who were the ones who brought the yeast in, the leaven in, the evil? The false teachers. So the presence of those teachers in the church community and their teachings, which were very convincing, evidently, those things were spoiling the church body. And so they needed to be removed. Those people needed to be removed as well as their teaching needed to be eradicated and rejected out of hand. And it's true in our church. If anybody would teach that you have to add anything to what Christ has done to be saved, those people are dangerous to the body of Christ. And they need to be removed because there's too much at stake. Now let's look at verse 10. This is very encouraging. So far it's been pretty hard sledding, pretty strong. But let's look at this. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. And what other view is he talking about? No other view except the fact that God saves us by Christ from our sins, and it's not of our doing. We have the hope of righteousness. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit and the grace of God. That's key. He has confidence. Evidently, these Galatians had yet to really dive headlong into buying this false teaching. But the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And that's really too mild a language. Condemnation is the idea of the word translated judgment. And in verse 11, But I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Evidently, these false teachers were saying, Hey, Paul speaks out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. He's saying it's all of grace, and then he says it's important to be circumcised. And they perhaps were alluding to Paul's asking Timothy. We, we know Timothy was the son of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, and Paul had him circumcised. It was not so that he could be more right with God. It was Paul's effort, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. To the Jew, I became a Jew. Paul was a Jew, but he, in the case of Timothy, he had this boy who was a young man who was 
half Jewish and half Gentile, had him circumcised so that his lack of circumcision would not be a stumbling block when they would go to the synagogues and preach. And Paul is saying, that's nonsense that I am preaching circumcision. Otherwise, I wouldn't be persecuted by these false teachers. He goes on to say, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Let me pause just a moment here. There are people who would say, yes, you've got got to trust Jesus Christ to be saved. And probably these false teachers were saying that. You've got to trust Jesus Christ to be saved. But what they're rather subtle in doing and sure to do at the same time is they add something to the cross of Christ. And in so doing, they render it null and void in terms of its impact upon us. It's all Jesus or nothing. It's all the law and no Christ. You can't have it both ways. You've either got to live by the law, and that's a dead end. It is a cul-de-sac. And you are not going to ever be made right with God if that's where you seek to live. Or we can fall on our faces, plead for the mercy and grace of God, and God is certainly willing to share that with us. Then in the strongest statement that Paul ever wrote, I would imagine, in verse 12, would that those, and he's basically saying, I wish, that's really the grammar, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Now, there's no nice way to say this. What he was saying is, I wish they would castrate themselves. That's strong. That doesn't sound very loving, does it? But it shows just how upset Paul was by this false teaching and the necessity of ridding the church of it. So, here's the big enemy. What is the big enemy? It's legalism. And what is legalism? It's the system of belief which says that our acceptance with God is based on our religious achievement, which would include circumcision among the Galatians for sure. Now, let's go to the second thing. What is the other thing that poses a threat to our freedom? Well, it's license. Now, what does that mean? It means that we can do whatever we want to now that we're saved. We can go and live any way we want. Why? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There are people who grasp that verse and say, okay, now I'm scot-free. I can do whatever I want and I'm not going to be punished. Well, that's dangerous. And that is something we must guard against. License is freedom without responsibility. It's represented in a Greek proverb that was contemporary with Paul, which went like this. The free man is one who lives on his own choices lives by and on his own choices. That was the prevailing view in that day. Is that like America today, by the way? It is, isn't it? Uh, I'm free. After all, I'm free. We hear that a lot of times. It's a free country. Thank God it's a free country. But there's some limitations which God places big time on our supposed freedom. Let's delve into this. Verse 13, look at it. Paul says again, 
For you were called to freedom, brothers. Called with a view toward your freedom in Christ is what he's saying. And then he gives this appeal. It's really in the form more of a command. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, the flesh is a term that's used by Paul often in his writings. And what it means is self-indulgence is what it means. It really means self. It's my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And what he's saying is don't turn your freedom into an occasion for the flesh. And the word occasion is one of those very helpful words to understand. What it means, it was a military term which was used to describe a base camp of operation. So don't turn your freedom into a base camp of operation for the flesh, for your own self-indulgence. That's what he's saying. Now, scan down the page to verse 19. And I'm not going to comment much on these three verses, but it's important for us to understand what the flesh looks like. Paul says in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those have to do with sexual sins. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Now, idolatry, we know the Bible says that we're to have no idols. That's Old Testament law, but it still applies to us, of course, because the Bible says flee idolatry. The Bible says this in the book of 1 John, the fifth chapter. Sorcery. The word sorcery, here's the word that's translated sorcery. This is the way it sounds, pharmakeia. Do you hear any word, a group of words, which comes from the word pharmakeia? Pharmacy, right? Pharmaceutical. Drugs. That would be inclusive in this idea. And then we get to some more acceptable sins, social sins, enmities, strife, jealousy. We don't think of those as real expressions of the flesh, but they are, believe me. They may be the more blatant expressions, actually. Outbursts of anger. Do any of you ever just sort of erupt in anger? Boom! You go off like a volcano. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, which would be partying as we would call it, often, if not always, associated with drunkenness, and things like these. Those are the deeds of the flesh. So do not let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, carefully follow this. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom from sin. Now, follow me. Freedom from sin, not freedom in order that we can sin. You see, there's a big difference there, isn't there? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So when I'm committing sin, I am switching allegiances, actually, because I belong to Christ and I put myself under the domination of sin. I am ruled by sin when I do just that. But look at the last part of verse 13. This is lovely, especially on Valentine's Day. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law. Paul was 
probably speaking of the Ten Commandments, and he was thinking of the second half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do you see how if I love you with this kind of love, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to commit adultery with your spouse. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to give false testimony about you, speak wrongly about you. I'm not going to want something that you have and will do whatever I can to get what you have, not just something like you have, but I really want what you have. Do you see how real love, when we look at the concept of love, it's the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's what this love is. It's the agape love of the New Testament. We're to love our neighbors. Do you see how that does, in fact, fulfill the whole law? The whole law is fulfilled in that one statement. And James says the same thing. He calls it in James 2.8, the royal law of liberty. And then he quotes the same verse from Leviticus 19.18 from the law. But let's back up to that little phrase at the end of verse 13. Through love, serve one another. Now, this may come as a surprise to you. The word serve one another literally means enslave yourself, yourselves rather, to one another. It's the word be slaves to one another, not just be servants. And this should not come as a big surprise to us, though, because Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 44, if you want to be first among all the people who follow me, then you must be the slave of all. Wow. And can you see how if we turn our freedom into this kind of servitude, this enslavement, you might say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus set us free? Yes, he set us free from the law of sin and death. But at the same time, he gave us the wonderful opportunity to be his slave. Remember the word of choice that Paul uses that we are bond servants of Christ Jesus, literally slaves of Christ Jesus, and He is the most benevolent master imaginable. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We belong to Jesus Christ. So when He says serve one another, He knows exactly what He's saying because the Bible says in Colossians 3, it is the Lord Christ you're serving when you're serving one another. When I serve you as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, who is it that I'm really serving? Well, I'm serving you, of course, but I'm serving Jesus. That's whom I'm serving. Would you serve Jesus if he came in the room today? Well, he's in the room. He's in your brother. He's in your sister. And remember what Jesus said would happen at the judgment seat of God. He said that there'll be people who are sheep and they'll be surprised in a way at what Jesus said, that they had fed him when he was hungry or clothed him when he was naked. And they say, why? When did it, how did this happen? I don't remember doing that. And he said, when you did it under one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it to me. So when I'm serving you through love, when I'm serving you through love, who am I actually serving? I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I like serving people too. And I hope you do as well. Some people I prefer not to serve, just like you do. 
But, you know, when I'm walking in the Spirit, I delight in serving others. I don't necessarily think about this verse, but it's a good verse to ponder, especially in a marriage. Would you say this would be a good verse for a marriage? Do you think that if two married people today said to one another, I am adopting this as the major emphasis of my life. Through love, I'm going to serve you as my spouse from this day forward. And I'm going to take what we studied today from God's Word, understanding that it's not self-indulgence that we've been set free for. It's self-sacrifice that we've been set free for. And there's nothing like serving the Lord. We're to be like Christ who laid down His life for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And we, if you tell your wife, Honey, by God's grace, I want to love you this way. I want to serve you. You know, that will be better than anything else you'll give your wife for Valentine's, if you mean it. And she'll make sure you're held accountable. <laughs> and ladies, I know the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for the church. And in that context, there's no reference to the responsibility of wives to love their husbands back. But would you include yourself in this command in Galatians 5.13, through love, be a slave to one another? Do you think that would apply to you, ladies, in the marriage context? Well, sure it does. Sure it does. If, if we commit ourselves in the church, in our homes, that's the beginning place, but in our church relationships, we're a family. It's a family of God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. I was thinking about my own sister today as I was reading this. Who's, she's a dear Christian, one of the best Christians I have ever known. And I thought, as I was preparing this message, I said, Lord, I need to love Lisa more this way. I need to see for ways that I can practically express my love to my sister, who is my double sister. She's my natural-born sister, thank God, and she's my spiritual sister. In Christ. And then look as we conclude this study, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, that sounds a lot like what we read, does it not? In verse 20, about disputes and dissensions and factions. And this false doctrine had created a divide among the Galatian believers. But if you bite and devour one another, have you ever seen those National Geographic specials? Or the, maybe, I don't know what other channels you would watch, the Discovery Channel or whatever, where these pack, this pack of wild dogs chasing a bunch of gazelles and they cut a weak one out and they come and they begin to bite and devour that animal and finally consume it. That is something that we do as believers in Christ to one another when we use our freedom as an occasion for the flesh rather than an occasion for there to be faith working through love in our lives. So we have two big enemies to our freedom, do we not? The biggest enemy, of course, is what Pogo said. You know Pogo? Some of you don't. You're too young. I'm sorry for you. Walt Kelly's character, he lived his life out in the Okefenokee Swamp. He was, a, as we'd say in the South, a possum. 
you proper people would say, oh, possum, I have a hard time even bringing myself to say it that way. But he was a gentle, gentle person. Has some wisdom too. He said, we've met the enemy and he is us. Do you know who your worst enemy is? It's not the devil. Your worst enemy is your flesh. You are your worst enemy. And Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God and he said, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. Wouldn't you like to get out from under that curse and in the grace of God? It's one step. It's a hard step because you have to deny yourself. You have to give up full control of your life to the Lord Jesus. But in making that step, you get out from under the burden of the law and out from under the burden of sin and out from the burden of your flesh your enemy, your arch enemy, and into the grace of God. Would you bow your head? Have you ever made that step away from your own achievement religiously and trusting Jesus for what he has done for you by dying in your place and giving him full control of your life? Would you just ask the Lord Jesus now, if you have never done that, would you ask the Lord Jesus to take control of your life and tell him, I want to follow you. I'm scared I can't do it because I know myself, but I want to follow you with a whole heart. Would you please forgive me, Jesus, of my sin? Thank you for paying for it. I'm indebted to you, and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Amen.